Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Andrea. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Uh, How are y'all doing? Yeah? Thank you. Thank you. Super specific. That's great. Um, I gave up TV for Lent, so I could be a little better. Uh, I'm joking, mostly. (laughs) I am allowing myself uh, to break the fast and watch some TV on Sundays, like specific TV on Sundays. But I really, really miss TV a lot, and I'm not ashamed to let you all know that. I miss it a lot. Um, I'm definitely a series binger, which uh, probably makes this Lent practice really good for me, (laughs) I guess. Um, But one of my favorite series in the last couple of years has been Ted Lasso. Yeah? Yes, Ted Lasso. So good. Um, uh, Mike and I were talking about Ted Lasso this morning, and he said it's the uh, most crass, wholesome show. Right? That's what we said. Yeah, so it's really both. So if you haven't watched it, just trying to temper your expectations a little bit. Um, If you are not familiar with this show, it's about an American football coach who moves to the UK to coach a soccer team without knowing anything about soccer. Uh, I was initially hesitant to watch it because I have very little interest in sports, just generally. Um, But the characters hooked me in and the episodes are consistently fun. And honestly, they always have this like profound turn, which was really unexpected. It's fun to watch Ted like bumble around a bit as an American. He's like an American out of water, so to speak. And it's been really interesting. And it's fun and profound to watch the way the other characters are continually surprised by who Ted really is in contrast with what they assume about him and their opinion about him transforms through the season. Super fun. So one of the most memorable scenes, at least for me, and I think Watson posted this on Facebook a little bit ago, but one of the most memorable scenes from season one is when Ted uh, challenges uh, a character named Rupert. He's the arrogant ex-owner of the team that Ted now coaches. So he challenges him to a game of darts. And without giving you the entire backstory, you should watch it, um, or you can watch it. Uh, crass and wholesome, just again, tempering the expectations. So without giving all the whole thing away, they're in a pub and Rupert shows up and he's just being a total jerk. He's gross. And Ted challenges him to this game of darts where if Rupert wins, he gets to pick the starting lineup in, in their upcoming game. If Ted wins, Rupert won't be allowed to sit in the owner's box anymore. So there's some things on the table. So like he sets this out and he kind of like throws this dart very carelessly and says like, it'll be fun. And Rupert sees this chance to take advantage of him. So he agrees. And then he does this thing where he he like pulls out these fancy darts from his pocket and he's like, oh, I forgot that I had these, you know. So So then this whole place becomes very invested in this dart game. And right at the end, towards the end, we see that Ted is behind. Um, he's behind Rupert and he's trying to figure out what he needs to win. Uh, and he gives sort of what I think has become known for the Ted Lasso fans as the dart speech. Um, so we have a clip this morning. I'm going to show it to you. Be curious. Be curious. It's a great scene. Um, but this is so interesting, right? This whole deal. If you think, if you've seen the season you, and you've, um, or, you're, or you're a fan of this show, Um, and you think about it, this sort of Ted's whole thing, right, is to be curious. 
If Rupert had been curious, he maybe would have asked some more questions. Maybe if he was curious, he would have learned something newer and truer instead of sticking with his already limited understanding of who Ted was. If he had been curious, maybe he could have saved a little face. I would have showed more, but again, the crass and the, uh, and the wholesome. But <laughs> Rupert was too sure what he already knew, of what he already knew, and that was good enough for him, but his lack of curiosity cost him here, and it cost him a lot. So these last few weeks, we've been journeying through Mark together, and this is the last week of this kind of first section of the book. We're going to continue on in the fall, but as we round out the first part of this series, I think it feels right to ask some questions. Just as a reminder, the author of the Gospel of Mark is writing to the early church, and the author has some specific goals in mind when writing this Gospel. It's probable that the author of Mark wrote this Gospel account to a community of believers in order to remind them who Jesus is, what Jesus is about. And the author of Mark is challenging, is looking to challenge the hearer to recognize the tendency in themselves to forget the urgency of the gospel and begin asking questions again. A few weeks ago, Lisa preached and she introduced sort of this arc of movement um, through this gospel to move from complacency to curiosity to belief. Complacency to curiosity to belief. And the author of Mark attempts to encourage us in this direction by reminding us in chapter 1 that the kingdom of God has come near in order that we might repent and believe the good news. Mark wants us to be faced with the decision to recognize our complacency and emerge from it into curiosity which points us toward belief. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Drew led our small group in prayer, and he asked God to increase our curiosity. And that's just stuck with me as I've studied and prepared to bring the message this week. Increase our curiosity. Throughout the passages that we've looked, so, looked at so far in Mark, no one who sees what Jesus does remains neutral to what he does or who he is. The people who witness Jesus in action, they question him, they celebrate him, they seek him out, they send him away, they're amazed by him, they're offended by him. Some of them tell more people about him and others plot to literally kill him. Each of these actions are in direct reaction to Jesus, to who Jesus is or what Jesus does. And there are questions about Jesus' identity, who he is, and how he does what he does that are peppered throughout these stories we've looked at over the past few weeks. In chapter 1, the people ask, what is this after Jesus exercises an unclean spirit out of a man? In the next chapter, in chapter 2, the religious leaders wonder how Jesus can tell a paralytic man that his sins are forgiven. They ask, who does he think he is, basically? And in chapter 4, after Jesus calms the storm in a boat with the disciples, the disciples ask, who is this? Who then is this? And the author of Mark includes all these questions in the narrative, but doesn't fully answer any of them. It seems that the reader is the one who is tasked with answering those questions. Increase our curiosity. 
In our text today, Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth. He's teaching in the synagogue, and the people there who hear him react with questions, more questions. The text says they were astounded, and they asked, where did this man get all of this? They're asking questions. But here, as we'll see, questions don't always lead to curiosity or to belief. Here, Jesus is doing a new thing among them, and the people don't know what to do with it. So they do this thing where they revert to what they already know about him. This is verse 1. He left that place, Jesus left that place, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded, and they said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The people are astounded at the wisdom and the power that Jesus is bringing to bear. And these are people who have known Jesus and his family his whole life. And instead of their questions being rooted in curiosity, instead of that, they, they use what they know to invalidate this new thing that they're seeing. So they know that Jesus comes from a family of laborers. He's a carpenter. Not the societal place probably from which they'd expect this kind of wisdom and power. They know his family. They call him son of Mary. And that actually might even point to their opinion that he's illegitimate. Instead of, um, they don't name his father, they name his mother instead. And for them, this blue-collar, illegitimate son surely can't be the one with the ability to do these deeds of power and bring this kind of wisdom to bear. So you see, they're asking questions, but they're not curious. They're asking questions to justify what they already know. And they're mistaking curiosity for complacency. It's moving the other way. The wild thing here is that the things that they use to invalidate what they're seeing in Jesus are in fact the things that make his identity as the Son of God legitimate. God chooses the things that are weak to shame the strong. Jesus didn't come as a royal-born king into luxury, but he was born in a stable to an unwed mother. He was raised and trained as a carpenter, as a laborer. God intentionally works in a way that's backwards to what the world thinks is powerful. Jesus' supposed illegitimacy as a son points to his heavenly sonship. And it has us ask, well, who then is his father? It points to his heavenly father from whom his power and purpose and identity and legacy come from. Instead of pointing the people towards something new, their questions only justify their familiarity, and then their familiarity with him causes offense. The text says, and they took offense at him. The Greek word that's translated here as offense is skandalizo. In other places in the New Testament, this same root word is translated as stumbling block, and hindrance, scandalizo. It's the same root word that Paul uses in Romans when he warns the church about becoming a hindrance to their siblings in Christ. 
And it's the same word in 1 Corinthians when Jesus is described as a stumbling block. When the people's familiarity with Jesus meets the newness of his ministry, they are scandalized, they are scandalized to the extent that they reject the proclamation of the kingdom of God coming near in Jesus. Their familiarity with him, what they thought they knew about him, becomes a stumbling block to their curiosity and ultimately becomes a stumbling block to their belief. And there's a word offered to, here, offered to us here, church. How often do we assume that we know who Jesus is, we know what Jesus is doing because it's what we know, it's, because what, it's what we've always done, or it's what we've seen other people do for a long, long time. Just like the people in this story, familiarity can cause us to mistake curiosity for complacency, and we can miss the new thing that's being offered to us right in front of us. Whether that's trivial, like the chance to bow out of a game of darts and save some face, or whether it's life-altering, like missing out on the invitation to recognize the nearness of the kingdom of God in a place that we don't expect it. Do our questions open us up to the invitation of curiosity or are they a stumbling block hindering us from recognizing the kingdom of God? This is important for us to consider because it's not, it doesn't come without a cost. There's a cost to this. The people fail to move from complacency to curiosity to belief in this place and they miss out. The text says that their lack of curiosity kept them from experiencing the power of the kingdom of God. This is the middle of verse 3. And they took offense at Jesus, and he said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. The text is saying Jesus could do no deed of power there, and he was amazed at their unbelief. This is a point of mystery to us, friends. It's, it's certainly a point of mystery to me. While the kingdom of God is not dependent on human faith, the power and the presence of the kingdom can be affected by human faith. I'm going to say that again. While the kingdom of God is not dependent on human faith, the power and the presence of the kingdom can be affected by human faith. I read one commentary this week that puts it like this. We may think of the kingdom of God as spaces where God's power is present. And it is present in great power where humans welcome it, lean fully into it, and seek to actualize it through communal practices of self-giving love driven by an orientation toward God and God's glory. Human resistance, however, can snuff out kingdom power and marginalize the life-giving presence of God. The power of the kingdom of God is not actualized where it is not received. The kingdom is expanding, yes. The kingdom is inclusive, yes. But in any given place where humanity is not living into its power, into its values, it's not actualized. In any given place where humanity is not living into the values of the kingdom like love, like justice, like peace, true peace, 
there is no love, justice, or true peace that's actualized. Where healing is not received, healing does not happen. And again, I want to make clear, the kingdom of God is not dependent on human faith, but God does choose to actualize the power of God's kingdom in humanity. I don't fully understand that. But the people rejected Jesus and his ministry, and they could not receive what was being offered. I do love, though, that what we're immediately reminded of next in the text is that, like Justin reminded us last week, the kingdom is not a zero-sum game. It's not all or nothing. It's a good reminder that it's not dependent on us. Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. And Mark says he could do no deed of power there. But then he immediately sort of backtracks and says, actually, Jesus was able to heal and cure a few people. Rejection does not halt the work of the kingdom. And in this next verse, Jesus goes out among the villages to continue teaching and proclaiming that the kingdom had come near. Even when he's rejected, Jesus still offers an invitation. The kingdom is on the move. It's come near and we're invited to go with it. We can be a part of the movement of the kingdom of God. We are invited into the places where the kingdom is going. We're invited into what is transforming both in and around us. Rejection doesn't stop the kingdom of God. Amen? I have the privilege of being in a small group with Nate Wong. And uh, if you don't know, he's not here this morning, I don't think. But if you don't know him, you should meet him. Um, A few weeks ago, I got to listen to him describe this invitation from God into belief, like into this invitation of God into a life of faith, into the kingdom. He described it as stepping into a body of moving water, like a river. When we approach a river, we can stand near it on the shore. We can hear it. We can see it. We can also get in it, and we can be carried along by its movement. Familiarity might lead us to the river, but curiosity is what leads us to step into it. And belief is getting into the river and letting it carry us. Belief isn't just this intellectual pursuit like we assume it is a lot of the time. It's a whole body, a whole life action to step into the kingdom that is on the move. The kingdom is on the move, and we're meant to go with it. The second part of the passage today recounts the, dis- the sending of the disciples, Jesus sending them to be on the move with the kingdom. The, the little section title in my Bible uh, calls this part the mission of the twelve. And this is what it is to be on mission. It's being on the move with God. Mission is a part of belief. The disciples are on the move with God, and they are called, and they are sent, and they do not remain in the same place. This is verse 7. Jesus went, among, went out among the villages teaching. He called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not to put on two tunics. 
He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples went out. They proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So the disciples are given this authority to come against what is wrong in the world. I love how the message translates verse 7. In this passage it says, He gave them authority and power to deal with the evil opposition. They're sent. They're sent to cast out demons and they're sent to anoint and to cure. And just like Jesus does in chapter 1, they're sent to proclaim that the kingdom is near and that all should repent. The kingdom is on the move and they are meant to go with it. And we, when we are moving with the kingdom, with the spirit, this becomes our mission too. He called the 12. They are called and sent. To be called here is to be invited to be in step with the kingdom. It's to be invited to be on the move with God. If you'll allow me a pastoral reminder here, I just want to take a quick minute to remind us that it isn't only ministers who are called into the movement of the kingdom. I'm in a season right now where I'm thinking a lot about my own calling. Apologies and great thanks to those of you who have been talking to me about this. But I've been thinking a lot about what calling means and I'm discovering what it means for calling to be both an invitation and a responsibility. But I want to be clear that in a church, the pastors are not the only ones who are called. The ministers are not the only ones who have a calling upon them. There's a calling in being the church. And if we are invited into the river together to move with the Spirit of God wherever it goes, together, in this place, in this time, there is a calling on both of our parts. Then I'm sorry we don't talk about this more explicitly, what it means to be called to be a community together, to be the body. We should. There's an invitation for you as you move with the kingdom to embody it in a particular way. And there is an invitation for us as we move with the kingdom to embody it in a particular way. And I don't say this to put a guilt trip on you, church. I really don't. But I do say this so that you do feel the weight of what it means to be on the move with God together. We are called and we are sent to be on the move with God. And this is the mission. This is the mission. Now, I know the word mission is probably heard in a very particular way for many of us, uh, particularly around the use of force or violence uh, by Christians who claim that they're on mission, uh, particularly the way that Christian mission has historically been espoused with colonization. Uh, I know I also associate the word mission with like strategies of proselytizing, which are frankly patronizing and gross. The ways in which the church has historically defined missiological success has been based on like numbers and this sort of production value. It's right for us to remember here what's our work and what's God's work. Conversion, 
or transformation. That's not our part. That's the work of God. That's where we've gotten it wrong in a lot of places. And this passage becomes a model of mission for us. People are not forced into repentance. People are not coerced into this whole body, whole life belief. And this is not what the disciples are sent out to do. Jesus directs them specifically that if a place rejects them, they should leave. One commentary put the implications of this really plainly. Where the gospel is received and embraced, disciples are to remain. Where it is rejected, they are to move on. This severs, even, this severs evangelism from any practice of domination or conquest. How different the history of the world would have been had Christian missionaries heeded these directives. Mm. The message translation describes the disciples' mission this way. They preached with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. Right and left, they sent the demons packing. They brought wellness to the sick. They anointed their bodies, healed their spirits. When we're moving with the kingdom, when we are in step with the spirit, this becomes our mission too. We are called to live into the power of God. We're called to announce the presence of the kingdom in all the places where it takes us. We are called to seek to actualize it, to welcome it, to lean into the kingdom, and we're called to invite other people to do the same thing. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark 2, proclaiming the good news that the time is now and that the kingdom of God has come near. We're called to invite both ourselves and other people to repent and believe that God is close by, that Jesus is doing something new and that the kingdom is on the move and it's here. And I recognize this is much harder in practice. I'm saying sort of some high-level things this morning. I'll concede that. Moving from the general sort of idea of this to specific things is really nuanced and it can look a lot of different ways. And while this passage is a model for us, it is still our work to realize what this looks like for us as individuals and what it looks like for us as a community. That's for us to discern. But I do believe that there are things that the Spirit is asking us to consider today as we try to be on the move with the kingdom, as we figure out what it means to be called and sent. And this is just from the passage this morning. So I want you to be challenged and I want you to be encouraged that first the kingdom is on the move and we are being sent somewhere. The kingdom is on the move and we are being sent somewhere. Where is it going, church? And are we going with it? I want to remind you that we don't go alone. Jesus didn't send the disciples out alone, and the people we go with us help us recognize and define where we're going and how we get there. We don't go alone. So who is with you? Who is with us? Who should be? I want to remind you and challenge us to trust in God's provision. We are to trust in God's provision, provision, and that means that there are things that we leave behind. The disciples are told to take nothing but the clothes on their backs and a staff. The staff was for aid on the journey and protection from danger. We could unpack that one another day. How are we trusting that God provides? 
And lastly, I want to encourage and challenge you to remember that we are given authority and we are given power. We are called to heal. We are called to cast out demons, to anoint. We are called and sent to deal with evil in the world in its many forms. And we are called and we are sent to proclaim the need for repentance as an invitation. What does this look like for us, church? What does it look like? What are the evils for us to deal with? Who are we to anoint? How do we proclaim? How do we invite? These are things that are right for us to consider together. God is doing something new. God's kingdom is on the move. Mark's gospel reminds us of the invitation and the urgency in the proclamation that the kingdom has come near. The beginning of the gospel of Mark in chapter 1, verse 1, says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The beginning of it. It means this fresh thing that God is doing something new in human history. That is for us too. The spirit is moving. God is doing something new and the kingdom is on the move. As we close out our time in Mark for this season, we'll come back, but as we close it out for now, I believe that there's, there is an invitation for each of us to respond to. Maybe you're new to Jesus. Maybe your context for him is limited. Maybe you're kind of standing on the edge of the river trying to make up your mind. Perhaps the invitation for you this morning is to move with the Spirit for the first time. Perhaps the invitation for you this morning is to let curiosity draw you into the river and wade in. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus. You've heard about him. You grew up with an understanding of what he's about. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time now. Perhaps the invitation for you this morning is to be curious to what you don't know. Maybe the invitation for you is to be made aware of how what you know might become a stumbling block as God does something new. Maybe the invitation for you is to let curiosity lead you to new questions, to let curiosity lead you to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be on the move with the kingdom. What is God calling us to leave behind in order to move forward in faith, health, and calling? The time is now. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. I want you to hear this invitation this morning, friends. I want you to hear this invitation from my mouth, and I want you to hear whatever the invitation is for you from the Spirit of God. God, increase our curiosity and lead us to belief. We give you ourselves. We give you our church. We pray that we would be able to sense where your spirit is moving, where your kingdom is going, and that we would join. Increase our curiosity. Lead us to belief. Amen.